mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. We are powered by Audio Technica, and I'm your host, John O'Peck, with a very special episode. This is a recording of a live panel at PAX Australia just a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I was asked to step in and host the Education in Games Pathways for Students panel. I was very happy to do so and get a chance to talk to some of the uh, very experienced and learned educators in the field of video games. I've had a lot of developers on this podcast. I've had a lot of people involved in the games industry, but never talked to a teacher of the programs that are creating our future generations of game devs. So it was really cool to talk to these three gentlemen and I'll introduce them as they begin talking in the panel because it's hard to tell sometimes who's who but first of all it was Jonathan Strugnell the incubator mentor at the Academy of Interactive Entertainment he's got uh, around 10 years experience in game and film teaching game design art and 3d effects and he currently is in a position supporting students who are transitioning into careers in games which was a big topic in this panel talking about how people who've studied can actually find work. So that was great to have Jonathan there. Next to him, we had Damien Scott, who is a games coordinator at the Chisholm Institute of TAFE. He has a background in game development as a designer, producer, and cinematic artist. He's also a past board member of the International Game Developers Association. So he was coming at the uh, topics from quite a broad and unique perspective, I thought. And he was a great person to have on the panel to talk realistically about some of the issues that exist in game development, education, and the industry in Australia. Uh, lastly, there was Dr. Stephen Conway, who is a Games and Interactivity Senior Lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology. He's an award-winning researcher and the co-editor of the first book on the relationship between video games and policy. And I loved having Stephen there because he's a PhD. He's coming at the topic of games from a cultural perspective, from a philosophical perspective as art forms. This will be the first of three PAX Australia interviews I'm putting up. The other two being with Graham from Devolver Digital and Victoria Dolbaum, design director at Bungie. It's great to have a chance to talk to those guys at the Audio Technica booth. So stay tuned in future weeks for those episodes. But for now, here is the panel of Education in Games, Pathways for Students. It's about an hour long. There's a few Q&As at the end, so I hope you learn something. Enjoy the show. Okay, so I guess we're going to do something today where we're talking about how far education in games have come and where it's going. So. Thank you all for coming, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of what our uh, experienced panelists have to say, but I thought we would start with uh, acknowledging the many years of experience that you have, and maybe you could tell us about what game development and education was like when you first got into it. Shall I kick, yeah, kick yeah, off with that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm very old, so uh, <laughs> we had one computer at our college, which was an Amiga 500, which you will have never heard of, uh, and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, apart from that, it was uh, pencil, paper, and um, cell that you drew on the front and turned over and painted on the back. So I, I learned traditional animation. There was no computer animation in those far old, far off days. So I learned on the job how to do 3D animation and picked up the programs as they came. Uh, then when I first transitioned into teaching, uh, it tended to be in the areas of 
there were multimedia courses and there was a little tiny bit of 3D, but mostly you were learning kind of Flash or how to develop websites or things like that. So it was not very useful. And there are still some universities that have courses like that. So be careful to avoid those <laughs> and to go to the universities or colleges that actually teach people how to do stuff. And that's the end of the panel. <laughs> oh, my turn, sorry. I kind of had finished a degree in, in cinema film um, and was really curious about how to make uh, Quake, if everyone remembers Quake, do cinematics. And through a friend of a friend, I ended up working for Team Fortress Software for about three years. Um, and that was a really great experience. Obviously, Valve came in and bought out the company at that particular point. Um, I know it sounds weird, but I wasn't interested in heading to Seattle and I ended up becoming an academic for 10 years. Part of the reasoning for that was I was never into TF and I still hadn't played the new one at all. I don't really care for it much. Um, still a game, just not that. Um, I was actually really impressed at that point in my life with the way that the mod community worked and how we basically just shared information. And I've been sharing information for 20 years since. So that's, there is a nice confluence for those two things. I suppose mine's a bit of a different entry point. I came up through academia doing this kind of traditional British route of doing undergrad, postgrad, master's, doctorate. Um, and at the time, I was a, it's hard to say, professional Counter-Strike player because it was still kind of bubbling. This was back in 1999, 2001. So more um, a hustler then. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a, probably a much more accurate term, Damien. Yeah, so I was playing competitive Counter-Strike for money. Um, yeah, that does sound like a hustler, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> And so that, that piqued my interest at the same time. I was um, doing an undergraduate double degree in history and politics and media. Um, then I did a master's. Um, I was encouraged to write my master's on games because I had such an obvious keen interest. Um, I, I won uh, an award for that. And then I got a second award for my doctorate where I looked at the relationship between games makers, games players, and culture via the lens of sport and video games, how these models of experience were transitioning between what is historically very disparate, separate domains of experience. Generally, you don't think sports and video games are enjoyed by the same people, but there's a lot of interest and critical overlap between the experience of the two things. Um, and so via that, um, and, you know, I was always messing around in the background. I had to give up Counter-Strike because if I couldn't be the best, I didn't want to touch it. Um, and I'm sure some people have that. Um, maybe it's just me. And so, yeah, then I got brought over here. Um, I, I, my, sorry, my accent, you might tell, um, as a proud Ecuadorian. No, I'm, I'm British. Um, <laughs> I'm not a native to Melbourne. So, yeah, I got brought over here to work at Swinburne. And that's really how I started formally teaching games and theory. Yeah. Fantastic. And Stephen, your job, specifically what you do now, seems like something that may not have even existed 10 or 15 years ago in some ways, where you're yeah. being brought on to shows like The Project to talk about games and give perspective as, uh, you know, the cultural relevance and impact that games have in our communities. So is that something that you see there's a growing demand for people that can kind of talk about the philosophy of games? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Jono. Um Certainly, there's been a kind of change in the zeitgeist in terms of how we talk and think about games. It used to be, I wonder if Damien and Jonathan had this, it used to be. So, for example, 
student might say 15 years ago, oh, I don't want to think about politics when I, I talk about games. And I would say, that's a really interesting political statement you've just made. <laughs> it's like someone who's like, I'm an atheist. It means I don't have a view on religion. You do. You're an atheist. Um, so that conversation has changed enormously in 15 years now. Students are coming in. They are thinking about games as art. They are thinking about games as an expression, as a communication, not just mindless entertainment. Not that it ever was, but sadly, sometimes that was the view. Um, so yeah, there, there is a desire to talk about these things in highly critical, reflective terms, which I think is really a good turn. And uh, I guess the big word on the screen there is pathways for students. And I'm interested if uh, <coughs> universities and courses didn't exist when you guys got into it, is there still room for people to get into games without going through these formal education processes, whether it's self-taught or through um, maybe mentoring or like YouTube tutorials like there are for so many different art styles? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so you can absolutely not go to any college, you can stay at home, uh, you can look up things on the internet, you can do online courses, many of which you can do for free, or others which are generally better, are, uh, you will pay for. But um, honestly, you can get all the education you need from home. Mm. Now, there's an advantage to actually working face-to-face -face with people or even online with, uh, with other people because they can give you their insights and uh, their experience. But you can absolutely make your own games from home. Uh, and in fact, make you make a game before you go to college, I, I would say. I mean, yeah. go and Unity and Unreal, <laughs> download a template, um, add some extra things to it, shuffle things around, release a game yourself. Uh, and then you'll be an author of a game and you'll, you'll have some knowledge about it before mm -hmm. you start. So yeah, yeah, there are pathways. And um, as you said earlier, the... Um, there's a lot of camaraderie, uh, or at least people tolerate each other. Uh, <laughs> so people will generally help you. Uh, now, that does exist in the film industry as well, but it's a bit more cutthroat in the film industry, I'd say, or at least there are uh, the pathways you have to go through are more rigid to get projects done in the film world. Uh, in the game world, it's more open at this stage, and people will help you along it, uh, possibly because... Everybody has their own ideas about types of games that they want to make, and they, they probably don't feel like you're going to steal their idea because you have your own ideas. So it's, there's, not, there's not really a lot of competition uh, in terms of wanting other people out of the industry. I got asked by a student once to sign an NDA before I marked their work. <laughs> I said, you don't need to be here, just, just leave. <laughs> wow. Uh, can I add just a bit? Yeah, of um, I, I consider myself a professional curator. Um, I've been teaching for 20 years <laughs> in this industry. Um, my job is to kind of guide you through the pathway, to introduce you to as many interesting and cool concepts as possible. Um, at the vocational level that I have worked at for the last 10 years, prior to that I was an academic for 10 as well, so I've sort of had a, a bit of both. Um, it's really about kind of... Um, support and guidance more than it is about the knowledge. Um, and, you know, there used to be a, a kind of developer that who, who could work in complete isolation in their bedroom and get, get, the, get the job done. They can still happen. Uh, Alex Bruce, if anyone knows him, um, 
with uh, his particular game. I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, just terrible S- because he was my ex-student. Spiral um, game. Oh, my God. Yes. Sean, what was it? Anti-chamber. Anti-chamber. I actually had that. He worked, chopped that game for three years with me. It was called Hazard before it actually came out. And, um, you know, the interesting thing and why I bring up Alex, not name dropping or anything, but he actually wasn't really a natural gamer. And he actually built a game that was laughing at how stupid you were. <laughs> and I fought with him for three years about saying it's not about that. It's about actually congratulating the people who are smart. There was an emphasis shift and the needle flipped and it actually ended up, I think, a better, much better product for it. Um, so I've always seen my role um, more as that curator, as someone who... Um, has had a, a, a fair amount of life experience in, in that sector as well as other things. Um, but, yeah, you can do all this at home. That's not the problem. And every student I've had knows they can't do it at home. They know they can't. They want the discipline. They want the guidance. And um, that's really outside of the course. That's what we, we're really trying to provide. And, um, yeah, I think it works. When it works, it's great. Uh, yes. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I, I taught myself Unity by uh, YouTube and an online course called Udemy, which is uh, a website that hosts all kinds of courses, and it's fantastic. Um, and Damien's absolutely right. You don't really, or you shouldn't come to these places with the expectation that we're going to go, here's a hammer, here's how you hold a hammer, here's how you lift your, why would we bother, to, that's so boring, you can learn that in you know, your own time. What we do is we curate, we guide, we use our expertise to tell you this has been done before, this is how people have done it, this is what you might want to think about, here's a bunch of problems you're going to encounter. When you've got issues, we're open to dialogue because you know whenever I hit a problem on Udemy or YouTube, I, c- I can scream at the screen for sure, but it's not going to respond to me. Well, the day it does, then we're out of business. Um, but until that point, yeah, we're there as a curator, as an expert. And so once people in this room who are studying game design or development or whatever it might be, they've got the skills, they've been through the course, they then have to find work and that's probably something that is hard in some ways, harder in some ways and easier in some ways than it has been because of, I guess, the amount of uh, indie development we see now. There's probably a, a different situation in the country with studios themselves hiring people compared to maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So is that part of the courses as well as far as how do we find work once we're finished at uni? Could I maybe go for it? This is the big white elephant of (laughs) education in games. Um, There's not a lot of jobs out there. Never has been. Um, Especially after 2010 when the GFC hit. Uh, We went from about 4,500 jobs down to about 400 in about uh, 12 months. Um, Awful, yeah? Mostly US money backing what we did here. Um, So as an educator, I mean... um, I've um, often got into trouble at work by saying that a games course is a license to print money. And in some ways it is. Um, um, I know there's students in the room, but I also do speak to a lot of parents who are interested in giving their kids a kick up the bum and saying, well, they love games, so maybe I'll match that with some education and see what happens. And there is some good results that happen there. Um, But essentially, um, we have to kind of balance these two competing forces that we have an industry that kind of doesn't really need us but we have a demand for people who want to learn how to get into that industry. So uh, our solution to that has to be to kind of focus on independent entrepreneurial mindsets that say, cool, um, you don't have to be competing with EA with a 90, $90 to $100 product in EB. You can now create $5 games. And, um, you know, I think Rolling Stone had an article once called the 100, sorry, the 1,000 True Friend 
uh, proposition that if you're an artist and you can curate, sorry, you can have a, a, a thousand people per year willing to spend a hundred dollars to support you in your art, that's a hundred grand a year. You know, that's that's the kind of that mindset that um, you know we talk about quite a bit. Um, you know, but I'm at the lower end, the vocational end, where I'm hopefully building students, and I've sent students off to AIE, which is good. I work at the Cert Three, Cert Four, uh, so kind of equivalent to high-end high school to um, diploma, and I've done some advanced diploma work. So then to hand off to uh, undergraduate mm -hmm. as well as uh, advanced diploma. Advanced diploma. So there's many years that can be covered here with this education, and I've actually now got students that have had um, been with me for four years. It's like, whew, mm -hmm. from uh, two years of high school to then two years of our programs. But do you need, or does the industry need games education? Uh, they've actively said no many times too, and that we're flooding them. And um, like, okay, well, that's cool, but, you know, we've still got this demand and we still feel like, as, as Stephen was suggesting, the, um, the types of games that are being built now. Uh, the art is actually an outcome that you can look for now in this industry. Um, and I think we've been a little lax in terms of government support in sort of developing that notion of art and <coughs> art as a mirror. And now, you know, look at PAX. You don't have to look around to realise there's quite a lot of people here. And that's a pretty good mirror to hold up onto people. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we've had some products. So there was the uh, Escape from Woomera. Woomera? Woomera? I get it. Sorry. But um, definitely, uh, you know, social, socially-minded product. Um, bring it on. I want to see more of that. Um, but, you know, also... Down a strike, you know. <laughs> it, it just, you know, it all takes little genius ideas and just that 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 idea that there's this really big scary workflow that um, you know you've heard words like alpha, beta, release candidates, prototyping, all these things. That's where we come in and say, well, here's how you can take a little idea and maybe make it a bit bigger, and then hopefully someone comes in and says, cool, let's help out. Look, the key thing is you need to learn how not just how to make a game, but how to make money as well. Mm -hmm. So any training course that you do. Now, in the early stages when you're going through uh, Cert 3 and 4, you're probably just learning the skills and kind of the mindset for making games. But as you go on and learn more, do an advanced diploma and then leading into what I teach, which is a graduate diploma and incubator program where you're making games to sell within the course. Um, or if you're going on to further educational study, you need to concentrate on how the hell do I get this out to people? How do they find out about this bloody good game that I'm making? And how much are they going to pay me? And that's something that's very important for educators to not lose sight of. Uh, we have to teach you how to sell stuff. And it's not something that gamers tend to have in their DNA to start with. Generally, you will find that most people want to make a good game that they enjoy and they like, and they tend to think, as gamers, I don't want to put things in the way of other people enjoying this, so I don't want to have barriers for people um, paying. But you have to get yourself out of that mindset and think, okay, I want to make a good game, but I want to live, so I need to be able to sell it. So you have to, so we have to teach you, okay, if you're going to be making um, a mobile game or any game that has paved walls and barriers, etc. How do you do that ethically, but will you will actually make money uh, about it? There are people out there who actively want to give you thousands of dollars uh, so Take that the they can be... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I, <laughs> I wish. No, I, I can't remember the name of this guy, but he... Um, 
he had lots and lots of money. Uh, but he, he said he was regularly spending thousands and thousands of dollars to essentially be the best, best person um, in... This was in uh, Game, of, Game of War, I think it was. They still uh, call these guys whales? Yeah. 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 Um, at, at any rate, um, he said, if I go out at night and enjoy, and enjoy myself, I have to spend $20,000 a night. Like if I go to a nightclub, I just end up spending that much because people expect it. So instead, I can stay home, spend that much at home, and I can just help thousands of people raid a territory, and I can support them. And yeah. So anyway, a uh, bit of, bit of a sidetrack. But there are some people who will want to spend lots of money, and you shouldn't feel guilty about taking their money. He would just be spending it on um, drinks and lap dances or whatever. Otherwise, <laughs> so you might as well take it. Uh, on the other hand, there are new ways of. Uh, getting funded coming out. Um, I've been looking at some very interesting uh, software that is all about getting money from um, advertisement that is actually inside games. So you can play the game and just like a film, you are watching advertising because people have paid the um, makers of the film to put stuff in uh, the film. Now we'll be able to put stuff in the game and um, it can be on billboards as you walk past uh, while you're yeah, and for, and for World of Warcraft, it's the loading hmm. screens where that comes in, not the in-game stuff, in case you get worried. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a bit smart about it. But. Yeah. Sure. And just to add, the purpose of a university in this space really is to equip you with critical, reflective thinking around mm. the medium and all of these practices. So, for example, well, and it provides <coughs> a safe space for you to fail fast and learn because no other space can you just keep making games that do nothing that nobody likes and continue to do so. So universities are about making rapid prototypes, failing with them, learning from them, making more. So I'll give you a, a really obvious example. So a, a rare collaboration between Swinburne and R RMIT. Has anyone played Untitled Goose Game? Yeah. So that's a collaboration between RMIT and Swinburne. And that was just, you know, a bunch of people trying to reflect upon what is a playful experience and how can you disrupt and subvert what the player is and how they feel in the game world and you know it really was just a process of iterating on this idea of subverting and getting people angry and rubbing people the wrong way and you know it was a stroke of genius what they ended up on but it's just they you know were given that space in university to really experiment and that's a really valuable space because not often in life are you allowed to do that, especially not in today's world. So does games like Untitled Goose Game or whether it might be a Hollow Knight or something that we can see as a success story of the Australian indie scene, do you feel like they are promising signs for people studying game development or can that be kind of fool's gold as looking up to this uh, unobtainable thing that's a re really rare success story that we're seeing more of, but it, it, compared to how many people it might inspire to get in the industry, it could be problematic eventually. Mate, whatever inspires you. Yeah. 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 Dev can be long, lonely, horrible stuff to put yourself through. So if you get inspired by something, just nail it to your wall and keep going. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's... All of those posters are all above your bed. Go for it. Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's we're in a multi-billion dollar industry, but as my friend Brendan Keogh pointed out in a talk the other day, 40% of games industry revenue is made by five companies. 
So it's always, always going to be a bit of an of a, what we call an oligopoly. It's a structure owned by very few stakeholders. Mm. Um, so very rarely are you going to be a multi-millionaire in games. But if that's why you're in games in the first place, then please go somewhere else. If it's solely just about making money, we want people who are want who want to be artists. We want people who want to actually create meaningful things, not just exploit people to get a quick dollar. You know, there's a balance. So yeah, like it's always going to be a problem. Always. I just say be your bad self, right? If you want to make money and you know how to do it in the games industry, go for it. But there's a lot of exploitive practices, you know, like loot boxing, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that you mentioned the stroke of genius. Yeah, let's go. That's, they say, you know, um, 1% genius, the other 99% perspiration. There's a lot of that that I think that mm-hmm. needs to be um, understood before you undertake this, mm-hmm. this massive thing. Um, because unlike film, film you kind of go through the process and you get a film, you have a test screening and you go, I oh, know we've got a turkey here, how do, we, how do we offload it? In games, this whole process is almost half of your development is testing it and you've got the ability to refine and get it right and get it right. Um, but you've got to also be open to and agile to those kind of demands as well. Um, it's, um, you, you asked also, could it be like, is it a good thing or a bad thing or is it a positive sign? Uh, remember that you don't, it's not an either or situation. Sure. So you can work you can create your own small studio and run that for five, ten years um, and or work in such a small studio and then move to a bigger company. Essentially, if you are making games, that will make it easier for you to get a job mm-hmm. making games. So if you can't get into a big studio right now and you make a small studio, um, release a few games, uh, get your games out there and now you have credits. You have, I have made these four or five games which are there on sale that is now a hell of a lot easier for you to get a job uh, So uh, with a big company. So yes, I, I think even if your dream goal is to be working for Blizzard, uh, you don't need to start with that. In fact, it's very rare that that would happen. You would start at a smaller level. You, you mm. can make, um, uh, you can work for a small indie team or create one and then change. I think in some ways Blizzard come knocking, right? Because you yeah. make Hollow Knight. Indeed. And yeah, companies may just, your company might get bought. Yep. So with, uh, especially in Australia, a limited pool of jobs available as far as who's hiring when you finish mm-hmm. studying, is there a focus on that entrepreneurial side of game development and all the little skills that you might need to start your own studio, whether it's how to submit a game to you know, the ratings board and how to write a description for the eShop and all these small things that mm-hmm. most uh, I guess tech-minded people might not have those written skills or whatever it might be, accounting skills to run a company. Is, is there a focus on that and how you can set uh, students up to go that direction? Uh, I, I feel I'll talk at my little bit more. Sure, go up, but, um, I'm a little limited in the, the training packages that are developed by me by the government and um, I don't really get a lot of chance to focus on business. Um, I had one unit out of 32 that I was allowed to talk about, you know, the business phenomenon surrounding our industry at the moment. And, you know, just talking about, you know, this, we live in a Kickstarter culture now. Um, and uh, I forget the guy's name, but he was, his job title was a futurist. And I'm like, I like that. Uh, he said attention is the um, currency of the 21st century. And he said that's essentially the basic problem you all have as an indie developer is how do you market yourself? Um and we're, you know, it's only 24 hours in a day, right? And, you know, you might 
spend eight of those playing your favourite game and only have another 10 minutes for something new. Um, so business, how, how can we talk more about business? Um, I, I would certainly have loved to have known Jono 10 years ago. It might have put me on different paths, but I'm, I'm sort of more from Stephen's camp. I'm an artist uh, primarily, and I use uh, games technology to dabble and have a lot of fun, but I think where could I have gone as well if I had that? So I would definitely be advocating for more uh, of, a, of an understanding of where the money goes in this industry and how you can match that. And, you know, your first few games might be not the games that you really want to make. The third or fourth one might suddenly be the one you get to really make. But you can still be prototyping parts of the cool game you want to make with your initial products as well. So there's strategies you can use, I think, to really get the most out of that time you're going to give yourself to, to build something. something. Uh, and, yeah, to answer the question, uh, yes, I think that education needs to be about that. Unless, however, I mean, you personally as an individual may not want to be an entrepreneur. You may not want to um, do the kind of the bus- have the business skills. Now, you'll still need a minimum in terms of how to sell yourself uh, as an employee, if nothing else, uh, or do freelancing. So I think it's still useful to have that. But... Um, apart from that, you might just decide, hey, I'm just going to get the skills and I'm going to find somebody who is a business person and I'm going to make an alliance with them. And they're going to be my partner and they're going to do that stuff and I will do the art stuff or the programming. So it doesn't have to be for everyone. Sure. But you need to have you need to have an understanding that there are those skills necessary to actually sell products, uh, at least that much. And so, yeah, we have an extra course which is a um, graduate diploma which is essentially the business stuff mm. so we kind of do for the first couple of years this is art or this is programming or this is game design uh, and then if you want to you can do an extra year that is kind of this is business uh, that's the model that we're kind of doing mm. uh, it may not be the best model we're still working on it um, education continues to uh, to improve uh, hopefully uh, particularly in our industry like if you teach History, maybe it doesn't change that much. Maybe you can still use the same textbooks from 10 years ago, but not in our field. You have to update. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad, glad shaking the head. Okay, hopefully they're a new historical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, our, all of our degrees at Swinburne involving games, we found them upon the premise that you look around the room in day one, that's going to be your future colleagues. That's going to be, be your future studio. So as Damien well pointed out, the games industry here collapsed not too long ago. Um, so there was a real insistence upon making work rather than finding work. And so all of our degrees now, we've got three now in games, um, are premised upon look around the room and that's who you're going to be working with. And the other one is we've signed up to a gym. Now, we're not going to give you the muscles. You need to go lift the weights. You need to do the work, right? You don't just walk into a gym and go, where are my muscles? Right, you have to lift the weights, so that's the whole premise. Also, is you need to show that you're willing to work, and that will draw people towards you. And so, you, you talk about that <clears throat> process of people, uh, I guess, going through these courses together and going into business together eventually. How important is it for students to understand uh, the, I guess, the importance of networking, collaboration? I don't know, you've got Games Plus up at AIE and we've got the arcade here for developers who do that very thing. So does that factor into the courses as well? Yes, uh, it's 
uh, as we probably know, uh, people in this industry are not necessarily the best at getting out there and presenting themselves. In some cases, yes, they can. Uh, but in many cases, at least the perception is that we tend to be a bit more withdrawn and, uh, and reserved. Uh, so you have to get used to networking. You have to pick up the skills. They're skills that can be taught and learned like any other skill. Uh, there are tricks you can uh, learn, such as, it's fairly well known, but if you want to make an impression on people and you want to get to build a relationship, you need to remember their name. Uh, so a fairly common technique is um, you when you introduce them and when you talk to them, you say their name three times, not immediately, uh, but work it in through the course of the evening uh, or whenever you're meeting, and that will help it stick in your memory. Uh, and then you kind of lock that in and you go and you write that down and you can get better. So um, a lot of people who are great networkers um, initially suck at it. Uh, so you can get better. Yeah, it's uh, not. It, yeah. It's, sorry, Jonathan. Yeah, sorry, Jonathan. 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 Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's um, look. Yeah, these are called soft skills, but they're actually very hard to learn. Um, and this was an issue we confronted at Swinburne. And so what we did was we went to the arcade, which Jono mentioned. It's a not-for-profit space where thirty-plus game development studios, independent game studios, work in Melbourne. And so we worked out an exclusive agreement with them that our final year students would work in that space with all of these independent game developers. And that was an enormously um, beneficial thing for these students to go through because they actually had to go and start talking to these developers. They had to, we call them boss fights. Every few weeks they have to show their work to these, you know, BAFTA award winners, Oscar award winners who will go, that sucks and this is why. And da -da 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 -da. So these boss fights are really confronting, but they're also extremely valuable. And of course, naturally, networking emerges from that process. And someone says, that person is really good. We're going to ask that person if they want to come work with us. Free tissues, in case. You yeah, want to absolutely. Always a tissue box nearby. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a gold rush industry. There's a lot of that still going on. There's still so many ways to innovate. Um, and I would want to uh, kind of make the point that there is such a diversity of skills needed now that your team can be made up of an amazing array of different people from totally different educational backgrounds and perspectives as well. So that's the other really interesting part about development. Um, it mirrors film in that it actually has a multitude of different personalities all coming together, um, working on a common goal. And that's um, something as a skill that if you you know haven't had that kind of exposure to uh, just through schooling, it, it, you pick that up pretty quickly and you realise you know I could, I, we were talking about something with one of your students. I had a student who for two years, three years, I struggled with him. <coughs> horrible developer, horrible. And I finally passed him, got him through everything, and he goes, "I'm going to do another course." I'm saying, "Oh, he goes in business," and I'm like, "Actually, that's perfect." He goes, "I, I suck at making them." But I loved them, and I think I and he had, had his father was all about business, and it all just clicked after three years. So I don't necessarily, for me, I get the luxury of sort of saying, okay, you can be with me for a bit of time, but you're not the finished product yet. So you know, you feel free to switch and go in a different direction. 
Whereas at your end, it's a little bit more. Yeah, no, you're more never familiar. a finished product. No, anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> still a work in progress. I, I, I accidentally fell into teaching, and I'm still here 20 years later. So. <laughs> I actually went to Monash to try and edit a film I was making, and got busted in their edit suites. <laughs> and they said, "Come and come and talk to our group about a game." I'm like, "All right, <laughs> I'm not in trouble." <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just really diverse, and it's, that's a strength. If you, make, if you don't see it as a strength, then that we can help you make that industry for sure. I think we've identified a few of the issues <clears throat> within the education system. So is it on students to be aware of these as they're studying and address it themselves in whether it's extra study or planning or whatever it might be? Or is it actually up to the education system to adjust and make sure that students have the clearest and best pathways to get into work and create those jobs as well? Uh, just firstly, I'm, I'm worried that we haven't talked about pathways into education necessarily. Maybe I just might mention briefly something, yeah. reinforce something you yeah. said, which is um, particularly at the um, lower level, I guess, uh, in kind of diplomas or certificate level, there are certificate courses you can do while still in school. Mm. Uh, so you can do vet in school programs, uh, which teach you the skills. You can get um, knowledge from that and also credits that you can use when you later go to a college or a university. So I think I should just... Yeah, uh, two, two years in our, yeah. in our Vetus program and you'll know Unreal 4. Yeah. Enough to smack it around, yeah. And then another two years, you can pretty well know what to do to publish a game. Mm -hmm. But then you need to go and see Steve about how to make it a good game, right? Yeah. So <laughs> while studying in um, at school, you can do, uh, do certificate courses. Uh, then you might choose to do a diploma or advanced diplomas. Diploma, either of those will give you practical skills university will be um, more theoretical uh, as well. Um, the own, in terms of whether you should get a degree or a diploma to become a game maker, uh, in terms of just creating games, uh, I would actually say it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Get a folio. Yes. The importance <laughs> is yeah. the work that you do rather than the qualification. Nobody cares about the qualification or if there is one. The only thing I will say is a degree is useful if you're going overseas. Uh, so if you're going to go overseas, there are visa things, for example, that it's unnecessary for you to have a degree. Yeah, so, Four-year degree is necessary for a US visa, for yeah. example. So, yeah, Th things like that may weigh on you in terms of how you want to um, yeah, pursue your career. Uh, otherwise, you just go and talk to the colleges and uh, or universities and, and see what suits you best. Anyway, yes. And, sorry, yeah, we should yeah. say these all seg into one another. Mm. So, for sure. example, we give you credit at university if you do, um, you know, mm. we've got Chisholm students, we've got AIE students who came to us and got a year or maybe a bit less, but they can get a whole year of credit at their university. So, for example, instead of doing a three-year degree, you do a two-year degree. Instead of a four-year, you do a three-year because we look at your education at AIE or Chisholm and we say, look, you've learned a lot of these things, we're going to tick them off and say you don't need to learn them again. So actually your university degree is a much shorter course. So they all click together pretty well. That means it's cheaper. Yeah, that means it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. One yes, less year of uni. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, and, it's and to actually answer your, your question, is it up to the students or up to the educators? Um, obviously, if the educators don't do that, we're bad educators. So yes, it's absolutely up to us. But everyone should also advocate for themselves so obviously you should be reading stuff um, you should be looking at the state of the industry you should be asking the question how am I going to get paid at the end of this how am I going to make money out of it how am I going to live 
and ask that of your lecturers. And yep. if they don't know, then maybe think about changing to a, a different uh, course of study. Uh, so, yes. You, yeah, you, yeah you, it's, uh, it's a dialogue. Sure. You know, uh, universities and all of these educational institutions, we're not agile enough to respond month by month, year by year mm. to the latest trends. There's a lot of government legislation and policy involved in what we can do and how quickly we can mm. do it. But certainly, you know, again, it's the gym metaphor. Um, we'll have the equipment, but if you say, you know what, um, I don't see this thing is very relevant. How can we change this? We'll be very responsive to that and we'll show you ways of doing things differently. And that's that's partially our responsibility, but it's partially the student's responsibility to ask those questions and open up that dialogue. Okay. So with the, uh, I guess, increase of <coughs> available study courses and degrees and the uh, different indie studios we've seen and some of these success stories, do you feel like, I guess, the future is looking brighter as far as uh, somewhat of a resurgence? We've, you mentioned the crises we've seen in the industry that have led to the closures of lots of studios, but do you think that we could see the return of some AA or AAA studios in Australia as well as this budding indie scene? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm... It's a loaded question. I, I promote it. I promote IP development, intellectual property. Um, and if you do your diligence there and you're building a great idea, uh, the game will emerge from that. And every real success in the in the country that I have, um, that I can bring them up, I think of companies like Ratbag and Adelaide that did, did really well. Um, they're all doing it on the back of a, of a great intellectual property. Um, and look at Team Fortress if you want another example of that. Um, that was really what kind of set me up as an educator to know that, you know, I know exactly where that game came from, what it was, and it was just kind of a, a really nice collection of things that the boys were interested in at the time and they made their own kind of dodgy game and the three years later it was um, the most played mod uh, on the world once we pinged all the Quake servers and it was over 95% of the Quake servers in the world were using it. And once we released that tool for free, uh, that's when Valve came knocking and said, cool, you've got a very popular game. Um, and, you know, one of the guys had financed that um, out of his inheritance um, just to sort of pay basic wages for everyone. Um, but they believed in the idea in the game and there was you know, a long time coming before it became financial. And um, I know what the boys are on now. Um, and it's paid off pretty well for them, so that's great. So that's what I would always advocate is that, you know, you can come to any institute, come with an idea already, and, you know, with, with that killer thing that you think it's going to work and just let us kind of start helping you make it and um, we'll help beat it into shape the yeah. best we can and you can disagree with us and actually be right and that's awesome too. Um that's the most value you'll get from us is that if you already bring in cool ideas. And you've got to understand too, uh, I'm going to drop a little bit of a swear word, but ideas are like assholes. Yeah, we've all got one. Um, you've got to be a bit, got to get over the preciousness of that and go, cool, because that idea that you wanted me to sign an NDA for, here's six games I already know like it. And you're like, oh, it's like, but it's cool. It doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Um, it means that you can push it in other directions and you know, do a little bit of research and, and suddenly you've got something that's unique that catches the eye that that 21st century attention deal i mentioned that's really what you're fighting for at i think fundamentally um irrespective of whatever size company you're working for everyone's looking for that yeah and yeah to to kind of talk about the environment we're currently in Jono, um 
it's always going to ebb and flow. So, for example, at Swinburne, we had an agreement with EA FireMonkeys to supply them with interns, but then EA FireMonkeys... Um, but now, as of... I mean, they had their, their opening party last night, Sledgehammer Games, you know, Call of Duty. Um, they're here, and now they want to work with us. So, you know, you'll have those opportunities always, I think, coming and going. Um, but then if you go down to Indie Rising, the area downstairs... You know, we've got so Samurai Punk, Harmonious Games, Big Dragon, um, God, the folks who made Level Squared, they've changed their bloody studio names. I can't remember. Anyway, they're all, they're all, they were at one point Swinburne students, then they were Swinburne grads who have their own develop, you know, studios. So that's another pathway. You just say, you know what? Look around the room. Why would we work for someone else when we've got a great product? Let's just make our own studio. And that's proven over time to be quite a sustainable model as well as the AAA or even the I studios who are employing actively in Melbourne. In, in terms of when we did have the big studios here, most of the IP wasn't local anyway. It was, as you said, American money uh, and therefore American IP being made by technicians in Australia. And so that was why it suddenly became cheaper to make it back in America. And so we lost all of those companies. So... The amount of IP, like the IP is continually increasing, and so more is being made. So I, I think I personally don't think we're likely to see big studios come here. Partly because I mean, why would you? You'd go to Malaysia yeah. or Indonesia, where it's a hell of a lot cheaper to em- employ people, uh, and there's now a generation of people who can do the work. So it's going to be um, yeah ch- cheaper to uh, to do it in in those places. But to put it in context, you send the work over there when it's go time. Yeah. Right. You can develop the IP, make it ready, and you're doing all your business meetings, you're meeting all the people who might be able to fund it, and they're like, cool, now how do we make it? And it's like, well, we can outsource here, here, and here. At that point, you're just after a product. Um, and of course, it's not a great local solution, but it's a global market too, right? Yeah, and, and also I think there will be small and medium teams in Australia that will continue to improve and uh, grow. So I think that's where the... I mean, I may be wrong, but I think that's where the future is in Australia. We're going to have uh, continually develop a small, healthy local market um, and maybe some representation from um, bigger companies in terms of having a small office or a smaller office here or strategic partnerships or whatever. But um, yeah, I think small to medium companies for the next foreseeable future who continue to do well. Yeah, I feel like I should mention Epic Games too. Um, I've, I've been a huge supporter of their their engine for over 25 years. So I am, I know people know their local, they've got an hour studio here. Uh, I think there's two, maybe three employees now. Um, Chris, who's the evangelist who goes around, he's an ex-student of mine. So I feel like great, Unreal is this fantastic technology that, you know, um, essentially... I feel like when we teach Unreal at our level, we can teach you how to build games rather than just building content for other people's games. We can get you there faster. Um, but getting back to the IP thing that we were mentioning earlier, um, people familiar with the concept of sweat equity? It's something they use quite a lot in the real estate industry, yeah, where you buy a, buy a clunker and, and do it up and turn it over and make a bit of money. Um, sweat equity in the games industry, that's essentially what Team Fortress got off the ground with. We were kind of just working because we loved what we were doing. Um, and it became valuable, very, very, very valuable, based around nothing. Um, but there was a desire to build it into something. That's it wasn't just a it was just a bunch of dudes messing around in queue. Um, but there was a plan underneath that. 
to try and commercialize it and, and make it serious and to do something with that. Um, and you've got to understand too, at that point, it was all with the Quake engine and id software. We're not interested in talking to people like us. They locked all that down and they just didn't want to have that conversation. Um, but now it's like the golden age of anyone can pick up Unreal for free, get out there, start smashing it out. Um, but then you'll get to a point and you go, I need more dudes like me. How do I do this? How do I keep that momentum rolling? And I'd like to think that's where I can help. Great. So I had a couple more questions, but I think we should turn it over to you guys and see if you have anything that you'd like to ask. We've got a roving mic, so just stick your old hand up. And one at the back there. That's why I thought I brought this. <laughs> That's a spirit. Just an editor's note here. The woman in the audience chose not to use the microphone provided to ask the question, so you can't really hear it, but it was about pathways for younger students talking primary school and early high school and how we can get them onto paths into games from that younger age. And there was a couple of follow-up questions, but I've just put the whole answer here for you to hear. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of initiatives around there to, to bring that you know, knowledge and that um, opportunity in at, at very young levels. Um, essentially, it comes down to the expertise of the staff at high primary schools, and, and that's sometimes it's a big ask. Sometimes there are some uh, high schools that have some really good IT teachers that do play around and have a good time. Um, but it, you know, I often say to my students, I'm going to teach you Unreal. So you've basically kind of already passed the course on a, on a technical level, but we still need to build a bunch of things just because of what they need to learn in order to make that thing actually run. So there's a high, sometimes quite a steep thing that I don't think a lot of teachers at that level can just kind of naturally pick up and still teach PE in the afternoon, if you know what I mean. Mm. So that, yeah. Yeah, look, it's, it's very tricky because without knowing the specific skills of the teachers, without knowing the resources you have, I mean, do you even have computers? Do you have tablets? You know, this kind of thing. Um, there are broad initiatives, though, for example, using Minecraft as a teaching tool in high schools is very big at the moment. And there's a lot of government tenders out to help develop that into a formalized program. So that might be a good route in code camps mm. and these kinds of initiatives are really useful teaching kids the basics of code and building blocks of game engines and so on. And then, of course, all of these lower-level game engines like uh, Game Maker uh, are really, I think, user-friendly for someone who's not got a background in coding and so on. Yeah. And at our college, we run a, a Vet in Schools program where we get the teachers in and we essentially teach them for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then they go out and run the courses and we send out people to the schools to do a couple of um, visits. I think it's once a month or something like that, that to go and check. Uh, and so that way we can kind of keep an eye that everyone is keeping it at the kind of the, the level. And the courses and careers um, counsellors in, in the college, obviously we keep reaching out to new teachers and I'm sure other institutions do as well. So they should already know uh, some people who are, running or, or kind of working in that uh, if if they don't then get in touch with people like us and we can say which school do you go to okay we'll send them some information and then at least they'll know but they could take part in such a program where the teachers go and learn this extra bit of knowledge and then that can um, they can teach that as part of their their courses it's quite like i long 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 ago i was a high school teacher and if someone had given me here's some study like here's the pre-done um work all you have to do is just teach them that i would have loved it because i had to write it all myself 
Just have them teach board games. Just get them making board games, rapid prototyping, paper prototyping. You know, a 10-year-old can do, pick it up and do that very creatively and very quickly. And show her success stories. There are various, like, women in games. Uh, and, like, they're, they're particularly good role models. Uh, and they occasionally write stuff down that you or have a website or, that you can go and look at. So um, either a parent or a teacher could contact them or, or just kind of show, look, this is... Um, game that was done by this person um, and this is the career that they've had and they had a wonderful time doing it is that something because you like drawing and you like sound they're both in there maybe that's something you might be interested in uh, the IGDA struggled for years to try and work out why there was a huge gender discrepancy and I sat through a lot of things I still don't understand why um, but I think for me the single greatest uh, agent for change is PAX and the culture that's emerging so I think it's just going to happen this normalises it for, for anyone, um, whereas 20 years ago, <laughs> it was just me and my sweaty mates landing on the weekend, yeah? No mm-hmm. no ladies allowed. Um, but it seems to have completely changed, which to me is one of the greatest things I've witnessed in the last 20 years. I think we've got a question off the front. Oh, okay. Just over here. Hi. I'm a U10 uh, video game design teacher. And I've set up a vet in schools program for another school. It is so hard. Like you talk about the training packages, mm-hmm. like they are so restrictive, and Australian curriculum is so pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> my question, so like I feel the thing, but my question is: game design typically is skill acquisition in coding or art, like three D art. Where can I actually find stuff about actual the elegance of design? So flow, the psychology, difficulty curve. Oh, yeah. I well. Yeah, I I teach that across multiple units at university. So I teach the psychology. So yeah, cheek sent me high, flow state, all of that kind of stuff. I teach self-determination theory and how it applies. I teach stuff like um, the hook model, you know, loads of so psychology, sociology, philosophy, cultural studies. um, That's our thing at university is to teach that. Yeah, so. And at at a school level, we have a certificate in um in programming a certificate in art but also a certificate in design so um, that would be the one to go for so there is in that here is base level coding here is base level um art but there is also this is how you set up a game loop and so yeah they exist um maybe come and talk to us afterwards and we can point you in some directions and say do this course (laughs) <laughs> or or here, here's someone you can talk to. Probably don't need the mic in the small room, but um, <laughs> anyway. uh, the well, this is tangentially related to the last question. Is um, what do you find as like some of the transferable skills that um, yeah, like um, kids, young adults get out of um, yeah, gaming education? Um, because there's so I'm getting from this the um, yeah, like the um, the games industry um, proper is like a fairly small pool of um, employment and opportunities, um, but at the same time, you've got <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, every organisation in the world like wants to sort of um, like gamify their sort of education and um, communications yeah. um, and sort of user interfaces. Um, so it seems like there's there's a lot out there, but then it's clear in terms of pathways. It's, it's not always clear, like how you map it from, you know, having this, you know, dream of like, um, yeah, developing the next big computer game, to, you know, going 
going through this education and then the like myriad of opportunities um, in all sorts of different kind of professions and industries that are out there? Uh, unreal. Right, a games technology is actually how we teach games, and what we've seen with Unreal is that uh, Epic is flogging that to any industry that's listening right now, and it's now perfectly viable for you to have a career as a Unreal Engine developer, and you never make a game, and yet everything you do in that engine with a few flicks of code on a blueprint, and suddenly you're playing. So the, it's not just the games industry. Um, I mean, I've even got a, I shouldn't confess this, but a dirty credit as a producer on a VR product that I made internally with my institute because, you know, they wanted to get someone out to try and do that sort of stuff. Um, there's so many, many opportunities now popping up around just the understanding of games technology that, you know, it's a bit remiss to not talk about um, just how vast those opportunities are. Um, my personal specialisation is in cinematics um, and machinima, real time. Um, so I'm investing quite a lot at the moment into virtual production, which is this thing that the Unreal Engine does now that it can be running live on a, on a film TV set. And um, directors and editors can actually do their thing live on set with a monkey like me running sequencer. So they're like, cool, this looks great. Um, and there just seems to be a new industry every day coming in with some kind of like, hmm, we didn't know we could do this now. So I think that's, for me, that, that Unreal answers a lot of really interesting questions there that, um, you know, games are great and you can always flip back, um, but the business side, you, you know you can service other industries that are just like, yeah, cool, we just need a solution. Like even people were talking about OH&S, you know, doing visualizations on their unique work sites and the sort of things they need to look out for and suddenly it's, VR and things are blowing up and you're like, oh yeah, probably shouldn't have flicked that valve and you know not to do it at work. Mm. It's just amazing opportunities. Mm. Yeah, I mean, game engines have been used. You know, at Swinburne, we've, we've made game engines that teach medical staff how to use equipment. Um, I've been involved in teaching cognitive skills to first-time prison inmates, first-time offenders, young male offenders. Um, that was through Unity. Um, but yeah, as Damien says, then, you know, Architects are more and more using Unreal and Unity. Um, so there's a lot of broad applications of this skill set and just general skills that they, yeah. they learn, communication, critical thinking. Um, this kind of dexterity of thinking is very applicable when you go to any um, industry that is a knowledge-based industry. You know, that is about thinking rather than using your hands in a way. You know, instead of building something in a factory, you're having to think through ideas. Games are a very good medium for getting you to think creatively. Well, Unreal and Unity are both evolving products. They're, they're products. They're actually, they make money for those companies. So they are bleeding edge technologies. Um, you can specialize in networking for Unreal for MMO style games. And you suddenly know pretty much everything there is to need to know about sending data across long distances at really high speeds. So it bleeds everywhere into every other industry. Um, so that... To me has always been the case it's just much more obvious to see these days so yeah I, for parents that are like my kid that's like you know what like we're going to teach in some pretty hardcore multimedia that's what we used to call it um, I'm probably showing my age but yeah you, know, you learn a game engine like this then there's a whole bunch of stuff that you're going to be just getting for free which is great and might inspire you to go in other directions pretty easily hmm? you might be right in that maybe there aren't enough pathways into that line of work set up yet uh, so it's possible that training institutions might be focused too much on 
here's games and here's how you network with that other kind of gamers. Maybe we need to concentrate more on networking with people outside the games industry. Uh, and that, I mean, happens, absolutely. Um, but maybe, uh, I'm speaking for other people, but maybe that possibly isn't embedded in the courses uh, enough. Yes. So yes. that's certainly yeah. some, something that can be improved. I would we say. do have some influence over the training guides. Mm. It's just sometimes it's like, yeah. <laughs> extra work we've got to do we've still got to deliver everything we're doing but um, yeah it's feels far away but uh, it they changed our up our training package updates you know more often than we like to be honest um, sometimes we just ignore it <laughs> <laughs> that was a little teacher trick <laughs> alright well that's all the yeah. time we have uh, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge expertise and advice uh, let's give them a round of applause and uh if you do have questions that you weren't able to get answered, I'm sure that they'd happily uh, indulge. And they've sure. got panels and booths around the floor if you also yeah, want to yeah, yep, see what they have to offer. So thanks for coming, everybody. Have thanks, a great thanks PAX. for listening. And of course, thanks to Audio Technica and thanks to PAX. If you'd like to check out some more of my interviews with people in the games industry, by all means, go back through the archives. We've got developers, indies, AAAs, games journalists, YouTubers, podcasters. We've got voice actors, you name it. If you really enjoyed the panel, I ask that you might leave a five-star rating and review in iTunes to help get the word out there. You can check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective at 8bit.net. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Jono himself. And until next episode, keep putting in work.